0: Garretson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 AM and 94.5 FM. We are back with another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I am your host and producer today, Jack Johnson. For today, And tomorrow, Jake Gutierrez out on vacation, but he will be back next week. So for the time being, I'm going to have everything locked down over here. And the reason you haven't heard from me for quite some time is that I've been down in Surprise, Arizona, covering the Kansas City Royals and their spring training. Uh, If you had the chance to listen to a variety of shows on 810 or ESPN Wichita uh, you would have been able to hear my voice uh, coming to you live from Arizona. A couple of player interviews. It, it was such a great time. It was fun. was down there with Soren Petro. We had a blast. Uh, everything went smooth. Uh, Royals PR was great. Uh, the players were great. The activity was awesome down there. And we know uh, that baseball is right around the corner. Uh, that is the next thing on my docket, I guess I should also say March Madness because that's one of my favorite events to, to watch and cover as well. But in terms of the professional sports leagues out there, yeah, baseball front and center is the focus right now, at least for me. Maybe not for everybody out there. I know that NFL free agency is right around the corner. We'll likely talk about that either today or tomorrow. We certainly are going to be talking some college hoops. I'm going to go over Joe Lunardi's most recent bracketology at some point in today's show. But to kick everything off, uh, I just wanted to give my overall thoughts on what occurred down in Surprise. Now, the Royals will have their first game on Friday against the Texas Rangers. Uh, It's the team they share the complex with. They do it every single year, and I believe uh, they'll wrap up Cactus League play with a game against the Texas Rangers. Uh, But everybody understands. Everybody knows that this team has pretty tall expectation now. Uh, Not to be a 95-win team, not to be a 100-win team, uh, not to be a World Series champion. I don't think, uh, at least to most people, is the expectation. The expectation this year is just to make things interesting. Have competitive baseball from March until September. And... The majority of people I've talked to, that, that's all they're asking for. All they're asking for is just keep me entertained. Give me a reason to watch this team. Give me a reason to go out to the ballpark, spend money, and watch baseball. Give me a reason to spend money on a monthly subscription to watch this team. If you don't have cable, I mean you'd be paying for cable to get the Royals, but if you're on a streaming service like I am, you gotta pay a little bit extra to watch this team. And last year was a disaster in that element of the team losing 106 and then people were frustrated that uh, you got an app like Bally Sports who wasn't that good to begin with. And then if you did get the game, the Royals were more than often losing and losing by a lot. The games were not that competitive. Uh, And I've said this over and over again throughout the week uh, when having the chance to talk with players and go back on the air on 810 or ESPN Wichita – that there is a lot of juice around this team. There is a lot of excitement. Uh, there is a lot of uh, known expectation. And you're going to hear me say that throughout this segment. Expectation, known expectation, at, expectation at that. I believe that this team is very confident in themselves. Uh, now, they haven't played their first spring training game. Who knows what the opening day roster is going to look like. I've got a blueprint, uh, but that can always change due to guys struggling or guys that go down with injuries. Things can always be shaken up a little bit. Uh, But the confidence definitely exudes from this team. And I have been down to spring training a couple of times. I didn't see confidence like this. I saw confident players. There's a difference. I think there is a big difference in seeing confident players and a confident team. Uh, There were guys absolutely that deserved to be uh, uh, confident in themselves. Uh, Royals players that were coming off big years. You go into camp and say, I-, I can do the same thing, if not better. But I didn't see that from everybody. I, I didn't see a bunch of guys that were all confident together. That, that was different from what I saw in Surprise. Th- this was a team uh, that has great chemistry right off the get-go. Uh, these are a lot of guys that have played together in the past. Uh, we found out about you know Mississippi State connection with some of the free agents coming in. I think it was Chris Stratton, Adam Frazier, and Hunter Renfro all played in Mississippi State. Uh, that factored in a little bit. You know, Michael Walker and Seth Lugo are guys that have a a history, have a past together. And when you're bringing in new guys and guys to lead this team, it's smart to have guys that have had previous connections, that like each other, that got along together, that played together. It makes it easier when you show up to spring training that it's not this let's all start from the bottom up. You know, everybody's got to meet everybody. There's going to be cliques. There's going to be groups that get along better than others. But everybody seemed very very comfortable with each other. That's what I should say. And the known expectation part is an important one. Because, as I said, there's a difference between confident players and a confident team. There is a difference between expectation and known expectation. When you have expectation, that can mean anything. You know, I look at a team like the Oakland A's. Bless their hearts. Their owner is somebody that should not be owning a baseball team. He is somebody that uh, shouldn't be assembling a roster. And he is somebody that just shouldn't be in the game of baseball. I think everybody knows that. Oakland is going into spring training with some form of expectation. Uh, with what they have, the small the small budget they have, the small market they're in, they do want to improve with the young guys they have on the roster because at the end of the day, those are the guys they can afford for the next handful of years until they move to Las Vegas. And at that point, if the owner starts spending, we can have a different conversation. We can have a different sit down. But Oakland is going into spring training with expectation of we got to develop these young guys in the same way the Royals were last year. The Royals... Though they could lie to you and say, well, we want to go compete for an AL Central title. We want to be a team that's in the postseason. And they said that last year. It wasn't believable because of the roster they'd assembled. And the expectation was, get Bobby Wood Jr. to become a star, figure out what you have, and Vinny Pasquantino, MJ Melendez, Kyle Isbell, Brady Singer, Chris Bubich, Daniel Lynch, all those guys. It was their evaluation year. But there's still expectation on the evaluation year. There is some form of a realistic goal that you are shooting for. Then when you have known expectation, it's coming from the national perception. It's coming from the fan base of, hey, this team can compete. This team can go far. This team can win an American League Central title. Do I believe that right now? Probably not. I think they'll be competitive for quite some time, but it's going to take a lot for this team to win a title. But the known expectation is that getting back to the players and them also not running with it and saying, yeah, we are the favorites. We should be the favorites. I I thought it was great that when we were talking to some of these players, it was still, you know, we can be uh, given these lofty expectations. We still got to go out there and win these games. No, That's the the awareness I was hoping to see. Anybody can say, yeah, we want to make the playoffs. But few can really acknowledge what it takes to get to the playoffs, what you need, what you need to go right, uh, who it falls on, which guys have to step up. And I got that sense from camp the first day we arrived there, settling into some roles, uh, guys that are really taking control of their spot on the team. Now, I'm not meaning you know, which inning they're coming out of the bullpen, Uh, where they fall in the lineup, which position they're going to play. That all comes in time. It's more so of who's the leaders, who are guys that are going to follow those leaders, who are the guys that young players look up to. You're starting to see that uh, be separated in the camp. You're starting to see that in a good way. Guys that are just settling into either what they know or what they want to achieve. If they want to be the leader, they can step up and be that leader. I think for a handful of years in these dark years of Royals baseball, there either wasn't a leader that would step up, um, wasn't healthy enough to play an entire season, and that way you can't really be a leader from the bench when you're banged up all the time. If it was a veteran guy in a one-year deal, he knew he wasn't going to be there for quite some time. And that is another part that I need to factor in in this when going over spring training, when, when going over what I saw, what I witnessed. These are guys that are committed to being here. And you certainly couldn't say that over the last couple years. You're bringing guys on one-year deals, minor league deals, and they make the roster. They know they're likely not going to be in Kansas City next year. They likely know, based off the talent level, they weren't going to be there in five months. Now, that's the difference this time around. There were guys that wanted to be here. There were guys that were excited to be here. Uh, Soren Petro... Uh, who you listen to on the program, had a great interview with Seth Lugo. And what caught my attention was that Seth Lugo mentioned that in free agency, he had about five suitors, and he was seriously interested in five suitors. Actually, I take that back. He said there were five he was seriously interested in. There was a lot of teams that were coveting him. But he felt like the Royals were the best fit. How many times would you have heard that over the course of a decade? You know, how many times do you think a free agent looked at Kansas City and said, this is a place I want to be? This is a place I want to sign a long-term deal to, which is what Lugo did, which is what Waka did, which is what you know, somebody like a Chris Stratton, a Hunter Renfro, who have you know team options, the reason Bobby Wood Jr. signed an extension, they feel like they are seriously building something here. They are building something important here. And that is always step one. I think that is step one in building a a competitive team. Uh, There's a couple different ways you can look at it in terms of the actual roster construction. No, uh, believing you can win and having guys that want to be here is step zero, really, because you can't start building a roster if you have guys that don't want to be here. I I think in in a different perspective... When you're looking at how to immediately build a winner in the same way the Marlins did last year, a Marlins team that was a little bit more aggressive in free agency, they had a tough division unlike the Royals, and they won 80-some games, made it into the wild card round, got smoked by Philly, but if I told you right now that was the outcome of the Royals, 80-some wins, wild card, get spanked by somebody in the wild card round and then your season's over, I'd take that in a heartbeat. You made it back to the playoffs, that's fun baseball for the entire season. Everybody would take that. And that's what Miami did. Miami had a bunch of guys that wanted to be there. They signed guys that were interested in being there. They assembled a good bullpen. They had young guys to build around, and the rotation shined. Now, I think the Royals look at something like that, a team that didn't need a ton, didn't need to go spend – no, $200, $300 million on a free agent. They went out there and they competed in a division that was much tougher than the Royals. That is not a stretch to think it's possible. And that's where I keep going back to. I know the Marlins last year had a, a much better roster, a better rotation, uh, more guys with upside. But I look at this year for the Royals, and I look at a team like Miami, and I say, what what really was the difference? What is the huge difference with these teams? Now you look at the Royals. Uh, they've got a young star, a top 20 player in baseball, and Bobby Wood Jr. You feel better at third base than you did last year. Michael Garcia, as opposed to Hunter Dozier. Vinny Pasquantino is back in the healthiest he's ever been. You've got a multiple-time all-star behind the plate in Salvador Perez. Outfield, question marks, that could be the downfall of the Royals if they can't hit, but you can expect a guy like MJ Melendez to bounce back. Kyle Isbell's one of the best defensive center fielders in the American League. Hunter Renfro's looking to bounce back. Now, that's a lot of what-ifs there. And I don't like playing the the shoulda, woulda, coulda or the what-if game. But it's better than it was last year. And I look at Miami's roster. I look at Kansas City's roster. A lot of it is hot starts. Can't bury yourself in April and May. A lot of it is staying healthy. And a lot of it is making sure if you go into a slump, you do struggle it's not for an extended period of time. Because if it goes on for an extended period of time, then all of this was, you know, not worth much. Back to that known expectation part, they're all aware of this. They're aware of the difficulty of April. They're aware of the Royals' past history in April. They're aware that most of the bad teams in Kansas City have their season wrapped up in the first five to six, seven series of the year. They don't get many breaks. First two series of the year, division winners from a year ago, Minnesota and Baltimore. That's tough. That's tough to go into, but it's also a good challenge. We know baseball is a marathon. We know that it is a walk, not a sprint. Teams can be hot in the first half and completely tail off and bottom out in the second. This team, though, has raised the floor enough where I think it is possible. I don't think there is going to be a month this year where they are so far out of it, it doesn't even matter standings-wise. I could always be wrong, and I'll knock on wood to to avoid that. To me, though, I I think this team is well-rounded enough has brought in enough pieces that they can hang in there. I'm not going to go out there and say this is a 85-86-87 win team, but they're fortunate to have a weak division. They are fortunate that weak division did not do much in terms of rebuilding their roster, bringing in new free agents. Chicago, who lost 101 games last year, decided to sell more and they're going to be selling a chunk of this season. You can cross them off the list. Cleveland, a team that has always given Kansas City problems. They're going to be mostly the same team, but they're built around Jose Ramirez offensively and not much after that. You know, you can have your pieces like a Josh Naylor, a Stephen Kwan, but there's also a lot worse offensive producers in that lineup than in some positions the Royals have. Rotation, bullpen, good. you got to make sure you bury Cleveland. Detroit, kind of like the Royals, had a aggressive offseason. They went out there and added some pieces, and they've got more young talent than the Royals. They've got a better bullpen. Uh, they can have a better rotation. Offensively, though, I'm taking the Royals' lineup. Detroit's lineup was terrible last year, and I don't think it's going to be that much better. And then you get to Minnesota. They are the top dog. They should be the top dog. They are the alpha of this division, even if they don't win 90 games. Sonny Gray walked away, signed with St. Louis. You know, you look at uh, Kent Maeda. He's now in Detroit. You still have Pablo Lopez, dark horse for a Cy Young. You have Joe Ryan, Bailey over, Louis Varland, Young arms that can take you the distance, but the Royals were fortunate that in the offseason they were so aggressive, the American League Central sat back on their hands a little bit. No, this is a division they feel like is for the taking. They feel like it's a division that they can go out there and seriously compete for. They do not feel like they are that intimidated. Are that scared by the top half of this division? I mean, you lost 106 last year. There's not going to be many people taking you seriously, and I don't think it matters to them. I don't think they are looking for people to pick them to be a division winner. There are more people out there acknowledging their existence, which is important. You want to be able to acknowledge that existence. But it's also about winning games, and they know how important that is. You can only get the support of the fan base. You can only get the praise you're looking for if you actually go out there and win those games. Winning those games is so simple-sounding. It really is. Just go out there and win. It's tough to do, though, for 162. And the Royals haven't done that for going up on seven years now. Six years, I should say. Should be a lot of fun. Should be a lot of excitement. Can't wait for the game tomorrow, believe. The first game you can catch on the Bally Sports app. I'm still trying to figure out uh, the Amazon Prime situation as to you know where you can stream those games. I think Bally Sports, the app you used last year, will be broadcasting the game on Sunday. So you can check out the Royals for the first time in person coming up in a few days. All right, we're going to take our first break of the show. When we come back, we're going to talk some bracketology. What is the latest with Joe Lunardi, who's in? Who's out? Which teams surprise us? We'll talk about that next on ESPN Kansas City. We are back here on The Shift on ESPN Kansas City, 94.5 FM and 1510 AM. I'm your host and producer today, Jack Johnson, and I will be the same tomorrow. Jake Gutierrez out on vacation. Not to worry, though, he will be back this next week, I believe it is. I think it's early next week, the next time we will hear from Jake Gutierrez. Well, it's not the most updated, uh, Joe Lunardi's most recent bracketology, uh, mainly because the big thing that happened over the last few days is UConn got their ass kicked by Creighton, but not that it really changed up much. I I think UConn still is the number one overall seed. Creighton was uh, very highly ranked in the Ken Palm ratings. Shouldn't be much of a concern there. I I think UConn is still the number one seed. That would have been... The only thing that changed my opinion was if, you know, Purdue were to leapfrog them and UConn were to drop because that loss. I don't think they would have, though. That's only UConn's third loss, I think, of the season and their first loss since mid-December. They were on a 14-game winning streak, if I'm not mistaken. But Joe Lunardi has the full break breakdown of the brackets, which are the number one seeds in each region. Uh, where some of these Big 12 and SEC teams stack up, because I know for a lot of people listening, KU, K-State, and Missouri are the teams that you care about, They're the ones that you view, they're the ones that you listen about, you try to find all the content about. So I'm sure you're wondering uh, where some of the teams stack up. I know for Missouri, uh, not going to be happening this year. They still have not won an SEC conference game for K-State, looking less and less likely after losing back-to-back games last week. Uh, but we'll still see. If K-State has a chance to squeak in uh, with a hot stretch to close out the regular season and then the Big 12 tourney. But as for Joe Lunardi's most recent bracketology, here is what he has. He's got UConn as the number one overall seed in the East region. That'll go through Boston. The number one seed in the Midwest region, which will go through Detroit, he's got the Purdue Boilermakers and Zach Eadie. The number one seed on the West, or in the West region, I should say, going through Los Angeles, the Arizona Wildcats out of the Pac-12, and soon to be the Big 12 next year. And lastly, the number one seed in the South going through Dallas is the Houston Cougars of the Big 12. Let's start it up top with the East region and who Joe Lunardi has right now. In fact, let's go one step further. Let's go to uh, the first four games, because I know there's a lot of sickos out there uh, that love to gamble and bet on the first four games in Dayton, Ohio. But here is what you'd be looking at if the season ended today. You'd have Seton Hall and Chris Beard's Ole Miss running Rebels fighting to get in as an 11 seed. So Seton Hall and Ole Miss playing in the first four games in Dayton, Ohio. The other 11 seeds, and this one will be fascinating in my opinion, just because we were so used to this team being a one seed for a handful of years due to their weak scheduling. An 11-seeded Butler team playing to get into the NCAA tournament against an 11-seeded Gonzaga team. Mark bunch dropping a ton of spots. They did have a big win in Lexington at Rupp Arena against Kentucky. But other than that, Gonzaga has not fared well this year. They would be a first four team in Dayton, Ohio, if the season ended today. Then you look at the 16 seeds. I know a lot of people aren't going to know enough about them. I'm not fully familiar with them just yet, but Norfolk State and North Dakota playing in as 16 seeds, and then Eastern Kentucky and Merrimack. Uh, will be the other 16 seeds. Again, this is all just predictions right now and where Joe Lunardi has a lot of these teams in the region. Now, I, I have gotten criticism for this before. I have been asked this before. I say Lunardi. Lunardi, I, I think, is how a lot of people say it. Um, Lunardi, Lunardi, you know how I'm saying it, so maybe I should just stick to saying bracketology so I don't butcher his name over and over again. I know a handful of times I've I've changed my opinion on if it's Lunardi or Lunardi I think I am going to go with Lunardi here. Yeah, I'm going to go with Lunardi. I keep saying Lunardi. It's Lunardi. Okay, so back to the East region. Here is who the number one seed uh, would be going up against. That's UConn. That's the number one overall seed. I do not expect that to change, barring some collapse by Dan Hurley's squad. Dan Hurley's squad... Uh, is too loaded. They're too experienced. They've got the championship pedigree. I know there hasn't been a back-to-back winner since Florida in the mid-2000s. Still, uh, this is a bunch that is going to make a deep run. I-, I don't know who would be the team to slow them down. It certainly isn't going to be Southern University. Uh, they would get the weakest 16 seed, and I do not think the UConn Huskies would struggle with them whatsoever. I know last year, Purdue uh, falls to Farley Dickinson, I don't see one happening this year. Too many good one seeds in the bracket. At the 8-9 matchup, Florida Atlantic and TCU. Uh, Florida Atlantic, of course, uh, making a run to the Final Four last year. They took down Kansas State in the Elite Eight. Different squad this year, though. And I I think we expected something like this from Florida Atlantic, a a team that has a Cinderella run. When you then put that level of expectation on them, they were top 25 to begin the year. Hell, I think they were top 10. They were bound to disappoint. Now, they were an 8 seed last year, or 8 or a 9 seed last year, and they made that run, so they might be in their wheelhouse, they might be in their comfort zone, but they'd be taking on TCU as a 9 seed, and folks, this TCU team, they've got the pieces. They've got the pieces to make a deep run. I really do believe that. This is a physical team. This is a tough team. They are a quick team. They turn you over. I do not think that would be a good matchup for Florida Atlantic, but whoever... The eight seed is or the nine seed is getting TCU, they are going to be in for a lot of trouble. The five seed in the region right now, per bracketology, is Wisconsin going up against Indiana State. Wisconsin has confused me a little bit. They never changed their style. Wisconsin has been the same team for two decades a bunch of tall white guys, slow white guys, guys that shoot the three. Uh, they're so fundamentally sound. They've never changed how they've recruited. They are the exact same team every single year. And barring that one unbelievable run they had with Frank Kaminsky and Sam Decker's squad that knocked off the undefeated Kentucky Wildcats, and uh, that was Carl Anthony Towns' team, that was the platoon team, Wisconsin's not a team that usually fares that well in the NCAA tournament. Uh, They wouldn't shock me if they were a first-round exit. They're trending down right now per Bracketology. I could see an upset. I also want to see how they fare in the Big 10 tournament. That's that's where I'm at with the Badgers. The 4 seed in this East region, Auburn Auburn is another team uh, with Bruce Pearl. I, I don't see as, as somebody that's going to make a deep run in March. They they always seem to surprise you early on, and then when things get tough in February and March, they tail off a little bit. As a four seed, that doesn't scare me that much. I think UConn would be doing backflips if they had an Auburn team trending downward as a four seed. Appalachian State, uh, the projected 13 seed right now in the East region. Colorado State going up against the winner of that Seton Hall and Ole Miss game. Uh, Not too much to bring you on that. Colorado State hopped in the top 25 a handful of times this year. Uh, Fun story. Last year, uh, they were a fun story, and I believe the year before that, uh, they were a pretty good story. So it's quietly a team that has found itself in the NCAA tournament a handful of times. That is a team that maybe could be a Cinderella story, but again, I I really do like Chris Beard's Ole Miss squad. I think if they won that play-on game, assuming they would be in the first four in Dayton, Ohio, They could be one of those sneaky sweet 16-11 seed teams to make it all the way there. The three seed, that would be the team standing in their way, Iowa State. UConn would not be thrilled about that. This Iowa State team is so damn good. They can still win the Big 12. They had a chance to beat Houston earlier in the week, but that was also in Houston where the Cougars have been so, so, so unbeatable uh, for a handful of years now. Iowa State is a three seed. Almost seems criminal. If they win the Big 12, I'd imagine they're going to grab a two-seed, might even grab a one-seed, depending on how many games they win the rest of the way. Uh, They would get Vermont, out of the American East, per Joe Lunardi's bracketology right now. The seven-seed, the Florida Gators. They were in a dogfight with Alabama yesterday, uh, lost in overtime to Nate Oates' squad. They would get Nevada as the 10-seed, and then North Carolina as a two-seed, taking on Colgate as a 15 seed. I'm not sure why North Carolina would be a 2 seed right now. I think they're probably going to be a 3 seed when it's all said and done. Uh, They did have that big win against Duke. They still have to go, though, to Cameron and They've had some bad, bad losses over the last month and a half uh, that are going to come up on their resume when it's all said and done. So that is the East region. For you Kansas fans, this is a region you want to pay close attention to, the West. If the Jayhawks do not win the Big 12 and they don't do that well in the Big 12 tournament, I'd imagine this is the region they're going to be uh, staying in. So the West region going through Los Angeles, the Arizona Wildcats will be the number 1 seed taking on the winner of Norfolk State and North Dakota. Uh, That would be in Salt Lake. So Arizona would be that team to have home... Home cooking, home court advantage for the entire NCAA tournament, even going into Phoenix. I think that's why Arizona be licking their chops as a one seed. They would have to go from Salt Lake to Los Angeles to Phoenix if they were to get all the way to the Final Four. So right now they are the one seed in Los Angeles. Uh, the 8-9 seed, Oklahoma versus Boise State. Oklahoma trending downward after their loss to Kansas on Saturday. Boise State trending upward at this point in time. Uh, Oklahoma – I don't know. I don't think this is a team that is bound to even get into the second round. I like what Porter Moser's done with this squad. I also think they're banged up. They are banged up as hell, and that should be alarming to guys like Todd Lebo up here in the studio, who is a big-time Oklahoma Sooners fan. I just don't see Oklahoma being a team that, that even even get get past a team like Boise State, if that is the matchup. I know right now it's still a ways off. We've got a month to go. Before the NCAA tournament, but it's always is interesting to see what some of these matchups are like. And some of these, I do feel like are going to be correct. These are going to be the teams that play each other. That Oklahoma Boise State matchup, if the season ended today, I'm taking the Broncos at this point in time. Clemson would be the five seed going up against Samford as the twelve in Spokane. Creighton would be the four seed going up against UC Irvine. Scary, scary four seed there in Creighton. We know. That McDermott squad in the past have been able to really surprise some people, uh, give a lot of one seeds a scare. Hell, they gave Kansas in the year they won the national championship maybe their toughest test of anybody. Uh, I know that the North Carolina game was thrilling. The Providence game was thrilling. That Creighton game was a nail-biter for sure, and Creighton always finds a way uh, to make some form of an upset happen in the NCAA tournament. If I was Arizona, I would not like the fact that that the four seed in Creighton, which very much could change. Like I said, uh, this is not updated, or it might have been. It might have been the day of. It might have been the morning of that Creighton that night blew the doors off UConn, which has not happened a lot in the last two years. Creighton dismantled Dan Hurley's squad, and college basketball is is weird this year. A lot of the top dogs have just weird losses, although Creighton losing to Creighton is not a bad loss in any way, shape, or form. This is a team that I think if they are a 3 or 4 seed, they're more like a 2 seed. I think they are that good, and they could make a deep run in March this year. The 6th seed in the region will be BYU, who Kansas will see coming up on Tuesday, I think it is, at Allen Fieldhouse. BYU would be taking on a Texas A&M team. I actually will say at this point, I don't think A&M makes the tournament. They lost to Arkansas a few days back. Uh, They have completely uh, crumbled here down the stretch. They were firmly in the NCAA tournament. Now they are lucky to even be a first four in. It wouldn't surprise me if they take Ole Miss's spot as a a play-in team, somebody that has to go to the first four in Dayton, Ohio, or they're just not in the NCAA tournament at all. Neither of those options would surprise me with the Aggies. They are a team that is pummeling, in the wrong direction. Duke, who is trending a bit upward, they beat Miami last night by 30. Uh, They are the three-seed right now in the West region per Joe Lunardi's bracketology. Charleston, the 14-seed. Then in Omaha, you'd have seven-seeded South Carolina and 10-seeded New Mexico. And the two-seed out of the Big 12 being the Kansas Jayhawks taking on Eastern Washington, who the Jayhawks saw a few years back, I think, as a 13-seed. Those were the Groves brothers who then transferred to Porter Moser's Oklahoma Sooners. Kansas is a two-seed in the Omaha region, feels likely at this point in time. It would take Kansas winning out and, hell, maybe at least get into the championship game in the Big 12 and then Houston not to grab that one seed in the South region in Dallas. I think their hope would to be be a two or a one in the Dallas region. I don't think they want to go all the way to L.A. if they are to make it to the second weekend. Omaha is not going to be an issue. It'll be Omaha, whether they're in the West or the South region. But right now, I think that's a matchup you like. I really do. I think if this region for Kansas was to be exactly all these teams, which we all know it's not, but just for the hypothetical here, if it were all these teams, I think Kansas loves that draw. South Carolina is a good team. They are a good SEC team. They're also not like the, the seven seed you got in Arkansas last year who had a couple of lottery picks. They were a team that had Final Four expectation going into the year, and even this year Arkansas had expectation, but they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. South Carolina is a team that is overachieved. Just simply put, they are an overachieving bunch, and some of those teams that they have knocked off don't look as good now. The SEC, for that matter, hasn't looked as strong in the last couple of weeks. So if you're Kansas and you looked at an Eastern Washington-South Carolina matchup in Omaha, you know, right off the bat that first weekend, I think you feel good about getting to the West region. And then you, know, you go back to last year. Arizona lost in the first round. Do you feel like Arizona is bound to make a deep run? I, I think at this point Arizona is always that team everybody falls in love with in the regular season, and then it goes south. Then it really becomes an issue. And that, to me, is where you factor in a lot with this West region. That, to me, is when you go to past seasons, how far they make it. Do they really have that deep run, that championship pedigree? So if you're Kansas, and you get past an Eastern Washington and the South Carolina, now you're looking at a matchup in L.A. against either a BYU, AM Duke, or Charleston. Let's say it's scratch, and you get Duke. Does this Duke team scare you a lot? I mean, you know my opinions on the Duke Blue Devils. I think this is an uber-talented team. I also think Kansas matches up well with them. I think this is a good matchup for Kansas if we do get Duke and KU in the NCAA tournament. And then, somehow, some way, you get to the Elite Eight with this region. Arizona, Oklahoma, Boise State, Clemson, Sanford, Creighton, UC Irvine. I think Creighton would be the most likely team to emerge out of that spot. And then you got a two versus four in the West region to get to the final four. That, to me, feels like a good region if you are a Kansas fan. There's a lot of people that aren't Kansas fans listening, so maybe you wouldn't want that region for the Jayhawks, or maybe you don't even think this team is capable of making it on the first weekend. I certainly would not blame you there. Going on to the South region, the Houston Cougars, second straight year, they would be a one seed taking on Sam Houston. So a battle of Texas schools here, that would occur in Memphis. And then Washington State and Northwestern is the 8 and the 9. See, that's another thing here about a Big 12 team winning the conference. I've seen a lot of Joe Lunardi's bracketologies, and Washington State and Northwestern consistently play each other. Washington State is trending upward, but you talk about a team that is rarely in spots like this. And Northwestern... Another team that I'm just not as high on coming out of the Big Ten. That would be a very favorable first weekend for the Cougars. 16 seed and then Washington State or Northwestern, that feels pretty easy for the Houston Cougars to move on to the Sweet 16. But if it is an Iowa State or a Kansas coming out victorious in the Big 12, that's when things look a lot different. The five seed in the South region right now in bracketology is Dayton taking on McNeese State, the fourth seed in Illinois going up against an Ivy League school in Yale. Man, I, I love Dayton. I think Dayton is a team that is in Cinderella conversations here. Now maybe they've already had enough runs in the NCAA tournament that you can't really call them a Cinderella team, but they've been as good as a, a top, you know, sixteen seed, overall sixteen seed, you know, in that three to four range, a handful of years. This Dayton team not too long ago was Oh, a top 10 team in the nation, not this year, but in past years. They've really built themselves up as one of those scary teams in college basketball, and I think that they have that power to become a Cinderella bunch this year. I'm not super high on Illinois. You know, the the, the Terrence Shannon situation has been, you know, I think, a dark cloud over the program, and I don't think they're really trending in any direction right now. They, they seem pretty stagnant at this point in time. Uh, the sixth seed right now in the South region, Texas Tech going up against the winner of that Butler and Gonzaga game. I like Tech. Uh, Texas Tech dismantled, you know, whooped up on Kansas uh, last week, beat them by 30 in Lubbock. I also think Texas Tech lacks a, a really good go-to guy. I think they are well-rounded. Now, I like Pop Isaacs. I think that you know somebody like a Joe Toussaint can be that go-to guy. I think they're just more well-balanced, which can be good. I don't know though. there's something about Tech not having that elite elite score that can concern me a little bit. I do like the matchup against Purdue and Gonzaga, but then if they were to get to that next game and it's Alabama or High Point, which right now is the three fourteen matchup in the South Region, I'm taking Alabama. Alabama is long; they are loaded. They are physical. They're nasty a little bit. Uh, they're they're a dirty team. So that would be a some kind of boxing match between Texas Tech and Texas Tech and Alabama. I'm taking Nate Oates there. Uh, this is just a long, athletic, talented, loaded bunch. The Crimson Tide have. Uh, they would be one of my sleeper teams to get to the Elite Eight in that South region if things stand the way they are right now. The seven seed would be Michigan State going up against 10 seed in Mississippi State. And the two seed is Shaka Smart's Marquette Golden Eagles against Moorhead State. I'll tell you this to close out the South region never bet on Marquette. Never, ever, ever bet on Marquette. Shaka Smart will find a way to lose in the first weekend. We all know it's coming. And surprise, surprise, Tom, as those Michigan State Spartans are seven seed. God, it feels like they're a 7 seed every single year. Now, last year, they might have been a 10. They're anywhere from a 7, 8, 9, or 10 seed now. Gone are the days of them being a 2, 3, and a 4 seed. They just kind of fall into that wheelhouse of a 7, 8, or a 9. And they can be that team that suddenly finds themselves in the Sweet 16. And if it was Michigan State and Marquette, I am putting all of the money down on the Spartans and not shock a smart squad. And lastly, where Joe Lunardi has everybody in the Midwest region, Purdue's region, here's what he's got. The Boilermakers in the one seed out of Indianapolis, taking on the winner of Eastern Kentucky in Merrimack. I would love this matchup for Purdue if they're to make a deep run. I know Purdue's got their criticisms. They are a team that has so much pressure on them. I mean, even just to get out of the first weekend. Right. They not only have to win their first game, they got to win their second. It has to be a Final Four team or bust, and I think they'll be fine this year. No way in hell they lose to a 16-seed two years in a row. I'll just play the odds there. Then they get a terrible Texas team, and I mean a terrible Texas team. I don't even know how they're an 8-seed. And then a god-awful Virginia team is the night That would be the most glorious region – most glorious first weekend you could cook up for a one-seed. UT and Virginia, Tony Bennett squad who can't score more than 45 points in a game. Man, if that is who Purdue draws, give me Purdue in the Elite Eight automatically. Just, just Sharpie, Seth Davis, Sharpie, Purdue in the Elite Eight playing in Detroit. Uh, that would be my take right now if that's the first weekend matchup for the Boilermakers. The five seed in Spokane would be Kentucky who all of a sudden looks very vulnerable. Last month and a half has been ugly for them. You know, they uh, had that big win against Auburn, not high on Auburn. And then Kentucky follows up by losing in the buzzer last night to LSU. 18 and eight on the year, 18 and nine it might be, I don't think Kentucky's going to be a five seed. I think they might slip as far to a six or a seven. Maybe if they can get hot, last couple games of the regular season, I can see them getting into that four to five range. Right now, though, five seeds pretty weak in the Midwest region. Twelve seed South Florida, though I do think the Wildcats should be fine there. San Diego State, who is trending upward, they are the four seed here going up against Akron, a surprise Akron team. Not sure I could take them as a Cinderella this year. I do like San Diego State. They're always defensive minded first. Uh, they are a very physical bunch, kind of similar to that uh, Texas Tech. An Alabama matchup boy they can beat you up the sixth seed in the region this would be an Omaha St. Mary's out of Gonzaga's conference going up against Grand Canyon as the 11 and then Baylor as a three seed should be a top half finisher in the Big 12 going up against Oakland also trending up as a 14 seed the seven seed in the Midwest region will be Utah State going up against a surprise bunch in Fred Hoiberg's Nebraska Cornhuskers. They are also trending up in the right direction. They are on the cusp of winning 20 games for the first time in a long time up there in Lincoln. And the two-seat being Tennessee, who did uh, just struggle with Missouri a few days back. They needed a late surge in the second half to hold off the winless Missouri Tigers in conference play. Uh, they'll be up against Quinnipiac right now in Joe Lunardi's Bracketology projections. So that is the full rundown in the recent bracketology. This came out two days ago. We'll probably get an updated look uh, coming up on Monday morning. I might dive into that next week at some point, depending on what the breaking news might be or what the big time news will be. Uh, just a reminder here on the last four ins, last four outs. Uh, the next four outs and the last four buys, the last four buys is New Mexico, Nebraska, A&M, Nevada. The last four inns, Butler, Gonzaga, Seton Hall, and Ole Miss, all the playing games there. The first four outs, Providence, Utah, Cincinnati, and Wake Forest. And the next four out, Colorado, Villanova, St. John's, and Pittsburgh. So that's the full rundown. I'm sure we'll have plenty more college basketball talk throughout the coming weeks because March Madness is right around the corner. The Big 12 Tournament is right around the corner, as well as the SEC Tournament. So, should be a lot of hoops talk over the next month or so. We will take our final break of the show. When we come back, we'll wrap up the shift on ESPN Kansas City. We are wrapping up the shift on ESPN Kansas City, 94.5 FM and 1510 AM. I'm your host and producer today, Jack Johnson. We'll be the same tomorrow... And we'll have Jake Gutierrez back in the saddle next week, as he is out on vacation. Thought it was interesting that I had the the chance to catch this over the weekend. Uh, we know that podcasts are are big thing now in sports, and there really are no limitations. Where in the past, you know, you never thought a, a p- <clears throat> excuse me, you never thought a player mid season uh, was going to hop on a podcast and talk you about stuff that was, you know, going on during the week. Never thought a coach would hop on a podcast, regardless if it was in season or out of season. I think you may know where I'm going with this, And Antonio Pierce of the Las Vegas Raiders. I love Antonio Pierce. I think he was the perfect fit for the Raiders. Uh, he seemed to completely reignite that locker room. He won over the locker room. They had some success. Uh, down the last stretch of the regular season. And if you are a Raiders fan, I, I think you look at somebody like him and say, even if it doesn't work out, it was the right move at the time. It was the right move to make Antonio Pierce the next head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. I liked him a lot because he loved the violence of the defense. He was a defensive player. Fitting. Raiders can build this team off their defense. They're nasty. Uh, The Raiders love leaning in to be, leaning in, excuse me, to being the villains. Always have, always will. And Antonio Pierce uh, loved to embrace that. I also think when you're coming off being the interim and you didn't make the playoffs, the last thing you want to do is give Bolton board material to other people. And Antonio Pierce hopped on a podcast. Might have been last week, might have been the weekend, can't really get my days right. And Antonio Pierce said something along the lines of, we have the recipe, we have the blueprint to beat the Chiefs, because yes, he did it once at Arrowhead Stadium, and he now becomes the umpteenth coach, player, to say they've got the blueprint, they've got the recipe. And yes, I think Antonio Pierce deserves a lot of credit. For the way the Raiders came in and beat up on the Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium. But does it really matter? Is that something you want to gloat about when that team just won a Super Bowl in your stadium? Their third in five years, their second straight? Is that something you really want to gloat about? And I get it. You want to win over the fan base. You want to win over your team as much as you can. But is there anybody out there that seriously believes that? that Antonio Pierce has found the recipe of beating the Chiefs. The Chiefs gave up two defensive touchdowns in 14 seconds. Might have been less than that. Might have been 10 seconds. They played horribly. They played their worst game of the year. So if that's the recipe of, hey, we forced them to play horribly, then okay. But I also think the likelihood of two defensive touchdowns, which were the only touchdowns that you really were able to get in that game, The defense played well against Kansas City. Nobody's going to deny that, but that's not a blueprint. That's not a recipe. One game is not a recipe. If you've beaten up on them three straight times, four straight times, that is a recipe. The Bengals had a recipe on how to beat the Chiefs. Nobody else right now does, and certainly not the Las Vegas Raiders who don't have a quarterback. Aiden O'Connell's not the guy, and maybe he's not going to be the guy next year. I love Antonio Pierce. Hope the best for him, but not the best thing you want to say after your rival just won a second straight Super Bowl. Let's get to do it for another edition of The Shift on ESPN Kansas City, 94.5 FM and 1510 AM. I've been your host and producer, Jack Johnson. We will talk to you tomorrow at 10 AM. You take it easy, Kansas City.